This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And when we fished in that first one, it was also a charity event. So we kind of saw a fundraiser happen through fly fishing. I think we liked that that combination of things, right? A sport, mm-hmm. an activity we love, but doing something good in the world with it. And um, really wasn't a part of my senior project. It was just a natural extension of it. You know, I decided, you know what, let's do, let's do our own charity tournament. And it can help out some of those women that my mom used to talk about, you know, being in the chemo chairs in the infusion rooms next to her and understanding that some of them would miss their next appointment because of financial issues. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted just to raise money for that cause up there at the time. Um, but honestly, I was a senior in high school doing this with my with my English teacher, I was about to go off to UNC Chapel Hill for college. I don't think we had an idea that we'd even do another tournament, let alone start our own nonprofit. So it's amazing to see 10 years, 10 years and a million dollars raised later and all that we've done on the competitive side and on the retreat side. This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website 
is TomRollandPodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How-To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on TomRollandPodcast.com, and the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram, or you can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. I'm Taylor Sharp from Casting for Hope, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast. Taylor, what's going on? It's good to talk to you, Tom. I'm glad um, to have you here. I'm glad to have you here. I'm excited we could finally connect and... Swap some fishing stories, I'm sure, and get to yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, I've been checking out what you what you uh, what you sent over and all the um, all the news stories and everything. It's really impressive what you've uh, what you've built. Casting for hope. Tell me about. Um, obviously, uh, you know the origin story is an emotional story for you. But if you wouldn't mind, can you tell us about how how you started your organization? Yeah, well, we've had we've had just such a great team fleet of volunteers included in building um, our organization and 10 years into it, you know, we're quite a bit different than when we started, but the the mission of it all uh, and the emotion behind it is the same. So yeah, at Casting for Hope, we are a nonprofit that financially and emotionally assists women and families with a gynecological cancer diagnosis. And that was all started in memory of my mom who passed away from ovarian cancer when I was quite young. So um she was diagnosed when I was 11 with hmm. ovarian cancer and I was just an avid, avid fisherman my, my whole life. But particularly that stage of life, I was really into fishing and um, she had a couple bouts with ovarian and a couple periods of remission. But it was in my junior year of high school um, when it came back for the last time. And I had an English teacher at my high school, John Zimmerman, who was quite into fly fishing. And I had grown up fishing for bass and golf course ponds and you know, throwing a rooster tail through the, the streams of North Carolina. Um, but I hadn't really gotten into fly fishing, but my English teacher was a bit of an expert, a science teacher of his uh, back in the day had had shown him around the streams and his dad had too. So it was in that last few months of my mom's um, battle with cancer that I really got into fly fishing into the streams of North Carolina and just got to understand how, how wonderfully regenerative it can be just to be out in the stream um, and the technicality of fly fishing really putting me away from my circumstances and just getting a bit of solitude. Um, so that's where we got our start was was holding a, a fly fishing tournament to raise money for a cancer clinic in Asheville, North Carolina in the mountains, which was going to put some money towards the financial assistance wing of that cancer clinic to help women who were sitting next to my mom during treatment, but had financial issues, you know, get through that tough time. Yeah. And what I was reading on your, um, on your bio, I think is that there's not a lot of money raised for this type of cancer. Is that correct? Or is it's, it is. Yeah. Those, those gynecological women's under the belt cancers are just talked about a little bit less and researched and, um, financially supported just a little bit less. So I think my mom experienced this from the side of just having, less women to talk to who, who are going through the same thing. And, um, you know, there's wonderful marketing campaigns for a lot of other cancers, but, you know, teal, the color for ovarian cancer and just those, the signs and symptoms and the emotional support you might need are a little bit less prevalent. 
So we wanted to specifically focus on those women to kind of be loud and proud with our teal and our ovarian cancer and gynecological cancer awareness programming, um, but also provide financial assistance because so many of those women, um, a lot of those outcomes are, are, are really are really dark. I think the average uh, average life expectancy is oftentimes around five years if mm. it's diagnosed at the stage that my mom was diagnosed. Um, so they need a lot of help. Yeah. And and Casting for Hope was born to be able to to help them out where we could. So John also has um, uh, is close to this, right? His grandmother is that is that what it is? His grandmother died of the same. Thing? Yeah, John and I both got a bit of a front row seat just being a caregiver, having someone in our family pass away um, from cancer. And, I, you know, it's tough to find anyone who hasn't been affected by cancer, you know, a family member, a friend. But he and I both understood two things, I think. One was that fly fishing um, and just getting out into the streams is the first part, you know, getting into an area of the world that has clean enough water for trout mm-hmm. and the act of waiting out in it and kind of being focused on the technicality of of everything you're doing is, is a good way to to get away from everything else on your mind and just to to relax a bit. So we, we both definitely understood that from personal experience. Um, and then we also just had a soft spot for for helping out families and uh, who are going through a cancer journey. And that's where Casting for Hope was really fused, this idea that we can take our love of fly fishing and our understanding of how fly fishing can be a positive impact in someone's life and use it to fundraise too. Um, mm-hmm. So we do fly fishing events, tournaments that raise money for the financial assistance side of things. But Tom, we also do uh, fly fishing retreats where we bring out patients and their caregivers up to our retreat center and we teach them how to fly fish and give them a weekend away from the clinical setting. That's cool because I, when I looked at the website and I looked at, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff about the tournaments and the fundraising and stuff. And, and, you know, at first I was like, Oh, this is like, this is like a fundraising thing. But then I did find, you know, the retreat. And so tell me about like when you first started this, you guys went to a tournament, right? And, and, and fished and had kind of an idea that spawned into what you're, what you're doing today. What was, what was that kind of initial conversation? Like what, and how, like when you first started thinking like, wouldn't it be cool if we were able to do this, how is that different than what it's turned into today? Yeah. It's interesting to look back, right? Because (laughs) I was 17, I guess at the time I'd just let, I was a senior in high school. Um, it was the year after I lost my mom and I was really diving deep into fly fishing. And we had this thing in our school called the senior project where you had to have a mentor and you picked a particular craft or trade that you would learn a lot about and get a lot of hours of experience with. And I decided to focus on competitive fly fishing and fly rod building. And John, my English teacher was my mentor. So we not only learned how to build fly rods, he taught me how to, how to hand make fly rods, mm. but also we fished in some events. Um, so that was kind of the part of my senior project. It was a lot of research, a research paper on fly fishing, but it was also the act of building fly rods and competing in these events. And when we fished in that first one, it was also a charity event. So we kind of saw a fundraiser happen through fly fishing. I think we liked that that combination of things, right? A sport, mm-hmm. an activity we love, but doing something good in the world with it. And um, really wasn't a part of my senior project. It was just a natural extension of it. He and I decided, you know what, let's do, let's do our own charity tournament. And it can help out some of those women that my mom used to talk about, you know, being in the chemo chairs in the infusion rooms next to her and understanding that some of them would miss their next appointment because of financial issues. Mm. You know, we wanted just to raise 
money for that cause up there at the time. Um, but honestly, I was a senior in high school doing this with my with my English teacher. I was about to go off to UNC Chapel Hill for college. I don't think we had an idea that we'd even do another tournament, let alone start our own nonprofit. So it's amazing to see 10 years, 10 years and a million dollars raised later and all that we've done on the competitive side and on the retreat side to I don't, I don't think we would have believed you if you had told us that we were going to do that. Cause at the time it was just the spring before I graduated putting on an event. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's awesome. I mean, you, you really, um, you know, you, you created this, this vision of what you wanted to do and then you were, then you followed through on it. That's, that's really amazing. Um, what do you think was responsible for that? Cause there's so many people that, you know, have these, these kind of goals or, or kind of ideas of something that they want to build and they don't don't follow through on it or they don't build it. What do you think was different here with with you guys? I think first of all, I was um you know really benefited just by the support that John had for my idea on this and and this cumulative idea we had together to do the tournament. I think um he was already really supportive of me as a teacher mm-hmm. and as you know someone to take me out to these fly fishing streams and to I like to say that a lot of everything John taught me most of what I know and and fly fishing, a lot of the gear I was using in those early days he owned, you know, so I have all of my fly fishing journey kind of to thank for him or to him to thank for, you know, that, but then also on the other side of it, I think when you're starting a project that just has such, such a heart to it, right. You know, Mm -hmm. it's so closely tied to, to who you are. And, uh, I think for me and John, in that case, you know, we really had a heart for the fundraising we were doing. And, um, for me in particular, my mom left me with this quote of you can focus on your problems or you can focus on your purpose. And I think for me, and I think for John and Kathy Hayne, our executive director and everyone on our board and all these volunteers, we've all kind of taken on that mantra of in some way, this is our purpose. And mm-hmm. when you start pouring a lot of energy into that, um, I think you can be surprised with what comes of it. Yeah. I mean, seriously. And, and you've, you've done a really good job with that. Tell me about the, um, the retreat. How did that, um, how did you make that a reality? Like that seems like a marquee property and, um, and, and now you can use it for, for all of these different, different things, the tournaments and the retreats and having, having the patients and the caregivers come out there. That's really an amazing part of, of what you've been able to create. How, how did you make that happen or even identifying the property and, and seeing that it was possible? I mean, that's, that's, it's a big vision for a, you know, I mean, and I'm sure maybe it didn't happen when you were 17, maybe it was a little bit longer, but even then that's, that's, that's a big vision, you know, to, to make happen. I feel like always with Casting for Hope, there's, a big story attached to how we got from one thing to the next or how a new person came into the fold or a new idea. But with the retreat center, that definitely has a big story. Um, In the beginning, we were just a one-off fishing tournament. So we thought until the competitive circuit at the time wanted us to do another event and promoted us and we started doing more fundraisers. And then we thought, well, we don't want to just do tournaments as fundraisers. We also want to get these patients and their caregivers out into the streams. We want to host retreat. So the first two years, actually, we um, just leaned on a family friend who had a mountain house nearby to a stream. And um, pretty funny, we hardly got to do any fly fishing because we got there and it rained nonstop. We got <laughs> rained out. We did fly tying sessions. We talked all about fly fishing. I think we had it broke up for a little bit. We did a casting lesson in the 
in the yard, but really the, the most fly fishing related thing they did was watch a river runs through it. <laughs> so those first couple of retreats, um, you know, didn't really offer the fly fishing as much, but what we did learn is that, gosh, these, these women and their caregivers really needed that weekend away. They really needed to get outside of the everyday, you know, struggles of cancer. Cause it's pretty all and, you know, all encompassing of their life, everything they kind of were doing or geared towards it. Um, and to get away from the clinical setting, to meet other people who are going through the same thing, to be able to talk about it in a way, you know, they don't really, they could really let their guard down and talk to talk about it with other people who, who knew that experience. So what that's a, a thing we learned for sure is these retreats um, are as much about the fellowship as they are, you know, the, the fishing, but then the retreat center. Yeah. We, um, the retreat center is where we held our first tournament. And when we were looking to do this, when I was in John's class in high school, we were calling around trying to find a place to hold an event. And as you can imagine, fishing clubs were saying, well, Hey, like a Saturday in the spring is kind of prime time. We've got, we've got bookings. It might be difficult to, to find a time for you. But finally we talked to one fly shop that had a guide service and they had access to some private water. And he said, we're happy to let you have it on a weekend, but heads up, you know, it might not be available for a while. So I'll, I'll check the calendar and let you know what I, what I find. And then he comes back and says, Hey, we've, we've got this April 20th weekend, if that works for you. And that's my mom's birthday weekend. That's oh, what we wow. wanted to do, do the whole time. So <laughs> just finding that place and the first, um, go around for the tournament really felt special in some way, you know, and then it was a few years later, um, that the fishing club that was operating, um, out there had a new direction and they no longer were, were going to be, um, leasing the property. And that's when the property owners came to us and, and asked if we wanted to take over the lease. So what a divine moment, I think there, Wow, John can even come in and, and, and tell that story of, of, um, of how that took place. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's how it came to be. So John joined us a little bit late, but John Zimmerman is your, is your partner in, in this and co-founder of, of casting for hope. John, welcome to the show. I'm glad you, glad you're here. Sorry. We had any difficulties getting online, but um, yeah. Oh, that wasn't a we difficulty. That was a me difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know. It could, we just started with this new service. So um Maybe we're, we're, we've only done a handful of them. So I don't know, maybe we were doing something wrong either way. Um, so when, when you saw that there was an opportunity for, um, you know, maybe to take over this lease, did that seem like something that was possible or like outside of where you guys were or a stretch or what did you think kind of as that kind of presented itself? Can I tell one thing that sure. left out of yeah. the origin story? Um, <laughs> The owners got to know us very serendipitously and totally unexpectedly to them. Um, I think it was the second year of the, the second or the third year of the tournament. Um, they knew that this fishing tournament went on every year, but they had no idea when it went on. Um, and the fly shop failed to communicate to them the weekend that it was going to be that year. And they showed up unexpectedly with, um, Charles's, I think it was Charles's mother in the car with them. And they thought they were coming up to the property to um, have a totally peaceful alone day and showed up to 200 cars, 150 volunteers, um, <laughs> pretty wide eyed of what on earth is going on here. Um, and they got one of our good volunteers whisked them over to us and said, this is, this is what's going on. These are the folks that are running it. Um, and Taylor had just had a promotional video made of us 
uh, of the organization. So we were able to take them into the house, show them the promo video, kind of smooth over the fact that, that they weren't having their solo day in the mountains um, as they thought. Uh, but then, yeah, a couple months later, they called us. Um, and <clears throat> to the question of like, was it a reach? We had been planning for it, um, putting like squirreling some funds away to make sure that if something like this were to present itself, we were in a financial position to, to activate it. Um, so I think, I think we all thought it arrived four to five years ahead of schedule. Um, but we had done enough work preparing for it to be able to activate the opportunity. Wow. That's, that's great. Um, this property, I mean, it seems to have some high quality fishing, right? I mean, in, in a lot of North Carolina, North Georgia, this whole area, um, there's something special about the water because, you know, I know they feed some trout in some of these places, but they feed trout all over the world and they don't get as big as they do in North Georgia and North Carolina. And I don't know what it is about the water, but I've seen them feed trout in Montana and they don't get as big as they do in North Georgia and North Carolina. So what describe this, this property that, you know, in, in what, what's special about this place? We definitely feel a bit spoiled. And I think we've, we've even seen the entitlement and some of the people who fish there often, because all of a sudden it, it might be someone's first fish on a fly rod and it's a four and a half pound rainbow <laughs> or, 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 or a six pound, you know, wild Brown coming through on the spawn, you know, people, people get to learn how to fight big fish out there very quickly. And even some of the people who fish out there regularly almost start getting bored with these like two and a half pound rainbows. It's like, that's not how it usually goes for people in a little trout stream, um, in, in North Carolina. But yeah, we, we have a tremendous time out there. It's a wonderful place to teach people to fly fish. Um, it's a beautiful property, a wonderful walking trail follows the the over mile stretch of river that we have. So when we have the retreats, you know, just the women, the act of walking down the trail and being right next to the river, it's beautiful and it's accessible for them. Um, for our tournaments, it's wonderful because there's an old farmhouse there with a, with a big kind of meadow in the beginning. That's where tournament headquarters is. But then as the river kind of goes on, we can split it up into different beats and, and put on some big, big tournaments out there and also utilize the surrounding rivers for some of our larger events that have multiple venues. Um, but we just adore it there. I mean, it's, it's special as a fishery for sure. Um, you know, this time of year, as we get some spawning Browns in there and always just some, some massive rainbows, there have been days out there where we've, we've seen some Berkeys coming through. Um, we've even caught a tiger trout there. Have you? Really? Um, so there's a day, there's a day where, where we're able to get all of them. Um, but for us, it's special for reasons beyond that. You know, I think it's special because when you walk the trail there, um, big wooden boards that have from a fallen down barn that we've reclaimed and restored and that the patients and their caregivers at our retreats paint an inspirational quote or message or verse on. And, and then we put those on the trees, lining the river and lining the trail so that whether you're there for a tournament, a day of fishing or a retreat, you have all these like reminders of what the space is about. Um, so I think it's special in that way too, right? Cause it's like where these, yeah top national tournaments are held, but it's also where people come for a really important weekend in their life. And I would imagine if you're, if you've been in a hospital setting a lot as a caregiver or as a patient and you get out 
even just to sit on the bank of a river or on the edge of the ocean. I don't know what it is about water, but water is very, seems very calming to, to everyone, right? Like you, I think, I think it's like the, the most energy of the whole planet is in water, like flowing water. So either sitting by the ocean or sitting by a stream and just watching it go by and just listening to it is gotta be just such a, such a big difference between a hospital setting or a clinical setting of any kind. So, I mean, whether you're fishing or not, that is incredibly therapeutic uh, for anyone, I would think. And and I'm sure that you get to see, you know, these people just like have this experience of just like, just, you know, feeling so much, so much better getting around that environment. And then if you mix in the fishing, I mean, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Um, really cool. Really cool what you guys have created there. Um so how did you decide that you were going to hold these type of tournaments? Um, I mean, like you're, you're kind of uh, tied in with Team USA, I guess, uh, from just judging on your, on your website. I saw, I saw the logo for Team USA and, uh, and youth fishing for Team USA. So how did you decide that that was an angle that you wanted to take? And I'm, I'm assuming that that's, you know, almost strictly a, a fundraising type thing uh for for your for your mission but how did that happen were you involved in those tournaments or or how did you even so what happened is you know john and i were big into fly fishing and and knew a lot of influential people kind of in the scene who were Mm -hmm. tapped in um we had fished in that one event but it was back when trout legend was the the large organizer of the of the competitive circuit and um in the beginning i think we just wanted to do a one-day fundraiser but what happened was given some of the guides and some of the friends we had in the fly fishing world and some, and some legends of, you know, Bo Cash, who had the longest running fly shop in the Southeast was one of our good friends and one of John's mentors and fishing buddies and Squeak Smith, who's a, you know, Trout Unlimited Mortensen, the Mortensen Award, John, um, mm-hmm. award winner for his conservation work. We had these types of people involved from the beginning. So on one hand, we were just kind of trying to get people out for a fun day of fishing. But then the Team USA youth team came and some of the top guides in the area came and it got competitive really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think credit to John, he had done um, some tennis. He was a tennis coach and had done a lot of tennis or- tournament organizing in his past. So he knew how to organize an event. And I think we had a compelling story, you know, with me being a young person doing this in honor of my mom. And then there was a great venue and the right people came out to that first one and it all just clicked. So Trout Legend said, hey, we would love for y'all to do this again. We'd love to promote you to an even like higher point ranking um, tournament. And all those team USA people, especially the youth team said, Hey, this is a great, a great practice ground for us. Mm-hmm. And as all of the top anglers, I mean, some people coming in from Oregon and Washington and Colorado, and certainly from Pennsylvania and Georgia and Tennessee, you know, all over the place, this became the cast and probe events, I think just became some flagship events in the whole competitive circuit of fly fishing. So we're really fortunate that those people latched onto us early on. Um, I think fast forwarding a little bit, we got named a gold level event. And yeah, what is that? We I, of, I heard that. What is, what is that? What describe a gold level event and how that's different from any other. The structure of it at so the time, I think there were only two. Yeah. John can get into the specific sure. structure of it. The gold level terminology was, um, related back to trout legend when trout legend was the sanctioning body for, um, fly fishing tournaments in the U S they, um, had to go, they went through a rebrand. They're a different organization now. Um, 
But the way that it used to be was a bronze level tournament would have two sessions. So you would fish two sessions. A silver tournament was four sessions. So you had four opportunities to go fish. And the gold levels were five sessions. Um, so the tricky part about putting... It's easy to put on a, a bronze tournament because you really only need one piece of solid water for that. Mm-hmm. Because you can flip it. You can fish the, the top half in one session and the bottom half in another but for a five session event like this, where everybody's going to have to fish all five sessions, you have to have five pieces of water. Um, and five pieces of really high quality water is difficult uh, in a small radius where somebody only has to drive 30 or 45 minutes and then they can be at their next high quality water zone. Um, as you know, those are, you know, those are far and few between. Um, we were really lucky to be in Western North Carolina where we had access to five pieces of consistently good water. Wow. Um, is all that on your property or that got- that's not all on your property? It's, it's near your property. <laughs> no. Right. So we, it's the diversity of water mm-hmm. um, that John's getting into now at the different venues. Yeah. So I, like we, we do two venues on our side. So big rock and little rock and then um, the upper and lower North toe and spruce pine and cane river and, um, Burnsville. So just having that number of pieces of water that work, um, is tough. So I think it's one of the reasons we got bumped up to gold, as you were saying at the beginning of North Carolina and Georgia, it's difficult across the country to find that much good trout water. So yeah. close together. And those gold level events too, is like our, ours in particular, there are two sessions on venues that are private water. Um, you've got two sessions on venues that are public water and are delayed harvest streams, you know, a wild population of fish, but largely a state stocked mm-hmm. spot. And then we were utilizing one at the time that there was this little wild Creek. So you're, you're going from catching these, you could catch an eight to 10 pound rainbow or Brown on our water you could be having wreck anglers around you at the public water. And then you're in this little wild stream where you're catching the smallest of. Uh Oh, you know, and oh, wait. Tiger trout water on a dry fly in one spot. We're good. Um, you know, and you're catching massive fish over on our end. So there's a good diversity of that. So let's talk about the the rules, like in in that kind of setup. Does everybody fish every piece of water in the way that you have the tournament set up? Yeah, at any given time, essentially at a five venue, five session event, which are goal level three day events, where um, there are eight teams of five anglers, and so at any given time, you've got one teammate on every water. So you have eight different people on different teams at each venue and you kind of swap around throughout the entire weekend. So yeah, every individual angler fishes all five venues. And at any given time, you've got a team represented, um, you know, one person at each venue. And how do you, um, select the water? Like, is it, do you draw or how do you, is it based on some, something that you get first choice or how do you select, how do you determine that? In the early years, it was very simple in that first event because it was, you know, when you only have two sessions and pretty much one piece of river, name out of the hat, beat, draw type thing. Mm. But we have a much more advanced system now. Um, 
John, do you want to get into FIPS Moosh and in our beat draw process? Um, we went through, I don't know, a 24, 36 hour work task of creating a draw um, that works so that all beats are fished every session. Um, nobody fishes, you know, the same beat behind a teammate immediately. It's, um, incredibly complicated draw system. Uh, so we created it correctly one time. Um, and now what we do is we have the draw and uh, we will draw for team spots. So the draw has now, if you see it in blank form, it goes down each of the, um, um, Taylor, I'm blanking on the word, uh, not the groups that they're in their flights. So it, it's, there are five flights. Um, and there is a spot for every teammate, every team in the flight. So we'll, the first thing we do is we draw all eight teams out, um, and they go in the team spot. And then from there, we draw each of the five team members out and they become team members. One, two, three, four, five, um, across the, the flights. So it, it takes us about 30 minutes to do it live now um, in person where I think the folks who try to do it, pull the things out of the hat and then redo and redo it. It's hours. It takes hours and hours mm. and hours for them to get the draw done live. In order to make sure that no teammate fishes the same, you know, beat on any of the rivers, it's just, it, it, you know, it's a, a huge process there. So we've, we figured out a right thing and then it's randomized and, um, you know, you get what you get, but immediately it's interesting from a competitive standpoint when these flights are determined, especially when we have some of these, you know, you kind of knew who some of the usual suspects are. We've had some, you know, great members of team USA who have been world champs coming in and, and national champs, you know, at these events. So all of a sudden, when you see one flight that's stacked with two or three of the best anglers, you're thinking, Hey, that's a flight to watch because they're going to be going neck and neck, but B it really decreases their chances of being able to win the event because all of a sudden they're kind of cannibalizing those top flight spots to where you can, you can get a bit lucky if you get in a different flight that doesn't involve some of the best people, because really you're competing against the people within your own flight to get your placing, um, which kind of determines it in the end. But it's, it's been quite fun at our events too, because I mean, we definitely get a huge draw because it's a, top competitive event in the country. And it's one of only a couple that is modeled after the world championship. So it's a really good practice grounds for, for team USA, um, adult and youth to be able to get in that type of, that type of format in before, before the big one, um, that they have coming up. But what's unique about our event is that every fish they're catching is raising money for our cause. Mm -hmm. And they, and some of them get just as into the fundraising as they do the competition, which is great. We have an online platform where they can go out and get, pledges made um, of donations per fish they catch. And so every time they're catching a fish, you're seeing the fundraising total go up throughout the weekend. And they're going out to their communities, their friends, their families and saying, Hey, I'm fishing in the, you know, that we just co-hosted the U S youth national championships. These are all kids under 18 who are trying to make, get their spot on the U S national team to be able to one day fish in the world championships. And they're going out to their, their communities, these 14, 15 year olds saying, I'm fishing in the national championship, but also I'm raising money for this cause for these women in North Carolina. And that's happening in Washington and Colorado and Pennsylvania. So it's pretty amazing to see. And at some of these events, we've seen 40 and $50,000 raids just by the fish caught that weekend. Really? Wow. Um, so it's tremendous to kind of have that energy of, okay, who's going to win? But also, wow, everyone's raising a lot of money. That's super cool. You know, the competitive, uh, 
the competitive deal. I got some friends that are on that that team, and it's interesting because there's a lot of different techniques, and I'm sure that you know, like when you when you you know you're just out there fishing with you know the caregivers and the patients and just other people. It's just you're 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 just kind of fishing, and then you see these guys come in, and and especially the the young people now. What uh, what kind of techniques are you seeing the 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 Team USA and the the people that have the aspirations for the you know to 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 pursue those type of tournaments? What what do you see that they're doing differently than your average angler on the on the public water? John can go into this further, but the quick thing I'll say is that in the ten years we've been doing this, putting on events, we have seen the evolution of gear and style of fly fishing <laughs> of like into the Euro nymphing style. I mean, it was like. I remember when the first person had that rod and then next year half of them did and the next year all of them did, you know, mm -hmm. in that style of fishing. So I would say Euro nipping comes to mind for me, John, in terms of a style that has really taken over. Competitive. Um, I'll, I'll make one, uh, one comment about why, why our events have been so successful. I think the um, Taylor and I are much better organizers than we are competitive fishermen. So we <laughs> put our energy into our skill sets Um but we do okay when we enter an event. Um, <laughs> I definitely Europe, the European kind of high stick um, nymphing has is really dominant. Um, I have seen a lot of anglers going back, especially in um, skinnier water, using their um, Euro nymphing rods, but going back to old school things like dry dropper rigs um, on skinny water. <clears throat> Another thing that I've seen especially in the last five years is micro streamers have become like all rage, um, across the competition fishing scene. Mm. Um, so many of them are using those little tiny number 12 and 14 micro streamers. Wow. And that's, then that's, uh, working on the big fish in your, in your water, those little tiny uh, yeah. things. I think what they love about it is they, they can fish it as a nymph, right? Like so they can cast it. And they can dead drift it going down, bobbing it a little bit, fish it as a little wounded fish, or you know those little micro streamers could be a a big um, stonefly trying mm -hmm. to get to the surface for that mm -hmm. matter too. Um, but they can do it that way, and then they get so they basically get two casts out of the same fly that or at the same drift, drift down and then um, jerk back up, mm -hmm. and so they get two drifts. Wow. So it's pretty amazing to watch some of these top competitors work work the water in their. Um, depends depending on the event it depends on the how long the session is but um i mean to watch some of them work i think a lot of our pitch store volunteers over the years we've had like john's high school students as volunteers and we've had random people who supported our cause were volunteers but we've also had interested hmm. you know anglers who just say i want to go and like learn from the best so if i can um just watch some of these national team anglers fish i'll learn so much just about their strategy of where are they fishing first? How long are they spending in that section? How often are they changing flies? In what way do they kind of strategize this, you know, three hours mm -hmm. in this one specific, you know, hundred yard area? So um, it's really interesting to watch. Somebody like that, they would be a volunteer and they would measure the fish or count the fish or, 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 or what are the volunteer opportunities where somebody could actually watch, you know, one of these guys fish for three hours? Depending upon the event, um, it's competitor controlled versus volunteer controlled. And that just means oftentimes these events are competitor controlled. So you're, you're fishing for a session for like a half session, and then you're monitoring, um, judging like the person that was judging you oh. for the next session. 
And that is, yeah, that is ensuring that all you know rules are being followed, but it's also specifically it is um, measuring and recording. The so of wait, the fish. like if I if we're on two different teams, you're watching me, and then I'm watching you. Is that what you're saying? In a competitor, in a competitor controlled event, yes, you would flip flop. So you can imagine that. Um, How do you get to decide who gets to go first? Because uh, that might be yeah. a, a very strategic move. <laughs> so the draw, the draw, the draw set up so that, uh, like, um, if I had first crack in session one, you would have first crack in session two. On different on different so, sections of water, yeah, fortunately. Yeah, so the, yeah. the, the sections of water aren't fished, but there is a difference between depending upon the time of the year, a thirty degree morning at eight a.m. versus a forty two degree sure. morning. You know, and and those flip flop. But you're never fishing the water directly after that person. But um, competitor controlled in some ways is nice because they can handle the fish really quickly and in a healthy way, and they know all the rules and they can move fast because they're in waders and they're used to this, right? Um, but that means that they're fishing half the time and, and, um, controlling half the time, but we've done in the past, we, we kind of stopped it during, during COVID and some of our events don't do it, but we used to have just a massive fleet of volunteers who were there so that you would be fishing the whole time and you'd always have a volunteer judge. And, um, so that's where that, where I was speaking to the judge is really learning a lot because all of a sudden, you know, you're a high school kid or you're a novice angler from the area, or you're just someone who wants to support a nonprofit and you get paired up with one of these people who's really putting on a show, you're running around, you're like never not um, measuring or recording a fish. We've had multiple world records broken at our events for the amount of fish caught in a session. And John, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one time someone caught 101 fish in a three hour session. And then the next year it was 105 and then the next year it was 106. So do the math on that. In a three hour session, you were hooking up with landing, you know, netting, bringing over, measuring, and getting back out there, and you're catching over 100 fish in a three-hour session. How many fish is um, that a minute? That's uh, three hours. I'm you. You are more head scholar. I mean, you should be able to do this <laughs> with math way faster than yeah, me. Yeah, and it and 180 <laughs> minutes to be able to do that, right? And that's not even incorporating the breaking off and retying on and trying a new fly and getting in a tangle and right. moving down to the bottom section of the river. So, wow. um, and, and it's then, quite, it's then quite a show. you don't want to be the guy that fishes that beat after that. I mean, how many fish are in the hundred yards? Like <laughs> maybe twice yeah, that well, many. So you, so you just, it's you so just sore lipped half of them. <laughs> like I'm, I'm imagining like Devin Olson and Michael Bradley and some of these names, Mason Sims, some of the people who did this, when you see that you had it like the afternoon after they had it in the morning, you're like, Oh gosh, you don't, yeah. you don't like fishing after someone like that. But what is funny on the flip side is when someone complains about a beat and says, Hey, I don't know about that beat. There wasn't really many fish in that beat. You know, I only caught, I only caught four fish and I swear I caught them both twice, you know? And then the next session, someone catches 42 and it's like, I don't know if it was <laughs> the there's, fact that there weren't fish in that beat. There's some guys out there that are pretty, pretty daggone good. Um, especially when you get start doing the Euro niffing and, and all that, like my friend uh, that's been on the team a bunch of times, Pete Erickson, he, he's good. I mean, those guys are good. They just dry clean the place. Um, but it's, it's I think a lot one of the things that Taylor didn't mention on like their, their efficiency. They sit at home and practice this stuff. Like they're at home practicing their knots. They're at home organizing their fly box so that, they have their confidence box and they don't waste time picking flies. Like all the, when I've got people out guiding them, 
and they're they're good fishermen like they don't waste time on the stream that normal fishermen waste time on like not knowing how to tie the knot correctly um going through 50 boxes of flies looking for a particular one and getting paralyzed in the choice on that um they, they spend loads of time off the river preparing to be on the river mm-hmm. um, and i think that's one of the huge things that separates those competitive the really good competitive anglers from all the rest of us in their at home prep work. Yeah. It's interesting because like so much of what you're, what you're talking about is like, like competitive fly fishing is in its infancy compared to competitive bass fishing, for example. I mean, it's just, they have bass fishing tournaments basically every weekend. They've been doing it for 50 years. There's just, just so many more hours and, and opportunity to do it, but they have the same kind of thing. Like the judges that are in those bass boats, they're volunteers. They're out there so that they can, you know, maybe they get paired up with Mike Iconelli or, or Kevin Van Dam or somebody like that. Imagine what you would learn. And they're, they're spending their time out there. And then of course, you know, those guys are practicing all the time, like everything they, they've been practicing all the time since they were eight years old and, and they can make a cast anywhere. And, and, and now that's kind of bleeding over into the, into the competitive fly fishing world. And, uh, it, it's, it, it will make everyone much better, much better, much faster. Um, I, I'm a big believer in, in competitions and how that kind of raises the bar, but like, just like you're talking about, like one guy had a, had a Euro rod and then, you know, probably, probably won or did really, really well. And then the next year it's twice that many and then it's everybody. And, uh, it's just interesting how those, those techniques will, will, um, come into a, to a certain style of fishing. So once you have, have started these, these gold level tournaments and, and things like that, then you have, you have something else like the Cherokee classic. What is that? For a number of years we did, um, you know, cause there's some barriers to entry, like one, the gold level event, those 40 slots sell out. We open them up usually in, um, like around the new year. And sometimes within minutes, all 40 of those slots, registration's full and some people don't get in. And it's a highly competitive, you know, you're, you're really intensely fishing for three days straight and it's a big time commitment, all of that. So we wanted to have some, um, you know, some less barriers of entry there, more whether it's just shorter or in a different location or even something that felt like a little bit um you know, less highly competitive in that regard, but like the Cherokee classic, for instance, was one where the, um, we had a good partnership with them there where we would, we would hold a, a two day event, right? John, it was always two days and haven't done it in a few years. Um, but that was great because we were able to use their water, um, both the trophy and the enterprise water up there. And, um, and that was a, that was a fun thing just to give people kind of a, a different slice of Western North Carolina. We do, um, for the past two years, we've done the U S youth national championship, which of course is only for those anglers. Oftentimes John will host another one in the fall that, um, might just be a one day, uh, one or two day event. That's just at our retreat center to make it just feel like it's a little bit, um, you know, easier, easier for someone who has more going on in their, in their life and can't commit to the full weekend and all the travel and time that it entails. Um, but it, it's fun for us to be able to, in that way, introduce more people into our story and into the casting throat family and into the community, you know, more opportunities to get people into what we're doing, learn about what we're doing by a fun event, fishing the water, but then also getting to go out to their communities and tell their story about, Hey, I fished in this event and I'm raising money for this cause. And it's been tremendous. The amount of people who didn't know about us prior to just fishing in a tournament. And now we're coming up to volunteer as guides at our retreats and we're going out and 
introducing their business to us to do a sponsorship of the next tournament. You know, those sorts of things are really important. So we've really organically been able to grow our donor base just that's, as the amount of people who have fished or volunteered. Our yeah, events. that's really cool. I like how you um, have figured out how to have these competitive events and, and really in the, the most competitive fashion, I mean, to, towards Team USA and also raise money and stay true to your, to your mission. That's, that's pretty impressive. Whose idea was it to, to raise, raise money like that? Like take pledges based upon the number of fish that you caught. Is that something that you had seen somewhere else or, or did you, who, who came up with that idea? That was a new project for us. Um, hadn't seen anyone else do that in competitive fishing. I mean, I grew up doing those relay for life mm-hmm. yeah. fundraisers, fundraising walks. So there's something kind of familiar about this. I, I oftentimes use that just to, to allow people to kind of have something to equate it to. Um, but no, I don't, I don't remember John exactly, but I remember being really advocating building um, this pledge platform and being really thankful that, you know, the way that the organization works, because we've talked a lot about me and John and our events and our retreats, but you know, he and I are the co-founders, student teacher, but then we have a full-time executive director, Kathy Haney, who's been in the cancer world for so long. Um, I, she was previously at that cancer clinic that we were, um, you know, benefiting for so long. And, and she works with the patients every day and we've got a big board and all this fleet of volunteers. So we're a properly structured organization now. So I know that when I wanted to build out this online pledge platform, I needed to get John and the board support to put in some funds to building it. And, uh, and, and so John was, was hugely helpful. And oftentimes I have these ideas and then, and then between the two of us, we got to figure out how to actually implement them. <laughs> and John's really good at being that side. So I have more ideas than we have the bandwidth for, but that was a good one that we latched on to together. It originally started with an angler wanting to do it. Um, an angler wanted to like get this pledge thing going. And so we, back in the dark ages, it was a piece of paper. Um, <laughs> like I, we, we sent out a, a form that had, you know, a blank for a name, phone number, email address, and the anglers would go out and get people to sign the form and get their pledge in. And then they'd hand those in when they came to the tournament. Um, and I think I was in the office one day, just, pulling my hair out because I couldn't read the handwriting to get the email addresses down to send the invoices. Um, and then that was like this, we could do this so much better. Like we can do this so much better. And then that was Taylor's vision of this should be an online platform that people can share out. We put them in. Um, I wanted, that was Taylor's want out of it. I wanted a site that we could run all of our tournaments off of a one-stop location Scoring that everybody could go in for our, just for our tournaments. People who wanted to keep up with the fundraising totals could go there too. So um, I think in the end, I've gotten what I wanted out of it. Taylor got what he wanted out of it. We've made a couple hundred thousand dollars off of it for women and families now. So that was, I don't know. I don't re- the origin story of it has so many different, points of, of intersection to what it turned into. But um, it's certainly been one of our better amalgamation ideas, I think. And I think just really allows our competitive events. I mean, you know, that on the head, Tom, of like really feeling the spirit of who we are as an organization um, and what we do. Mm-hmm. I think it's just such a clear reminder to all of those anglers that, hey, every fish you catch like even if you're losing your session, having a tough day, keep fishing because you can raise money for, you know, women and families who really need it. And, um, 
you know, you might not be winning the event, but you can try to raise more money than you did last year, you know? And I think that's been a good, really healthy reminder in the messaging of this tournament competitive, you know, this competitive tournament series that we've started underneath Casting for Hope is that, hey, it's all really in line with our mission. And Mm -hmm. it's a really, we've really been um, blown away by how much the fishing community has embraced that. Wow. And then- It's one of the really fun, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to, it's really fun to watch the anglers get as upset about dropping a fish because it's not going to go on their scorecard as it is about the $50 that's not going toward a picture. Right. Um, I get that. We get that so many times of people just kind of having that crap moment because they know that they, every fish that they get is 50 bucks and they just lost 50 bucks. Um, so that has been a really powerful thing too. So you've also expanded this out to, to some other things. I saw a 5k run. Um, how did you decide to, to do that? And, and (laughs) (laughs) that's a really funny one because, um, when we were raising money for the hope chest originally, (laughs) we had built up, you know, quite a bit of liquidity with them. If, if I needed to go spend some money to raise some money, there was a pot of money there to do that. We had raised it. We kept some back every, after every event as seed money for the next event. This is when it was just me and John raising money for another organization in the early years. And then we decided we, we wanted to do our own thing. And then we left all our seed money behind. We, we had no money. We were starting over totally from scratch. Um, I personally wrote a check to the bank to open our first checking account because we were that poor um, and had no, no foundation money. So the 5K was originally the first fundraiser for us to pay our um, 501c3 submission bills. <laughs> Um, so the 5k, we haven't been able to do it since, um, COVID hit, but hopefully it is making a 2023 return. Um, so you should have a, you should have a, uh, a a category where you run it in waiters. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I figured that was going to be, that was going to be the number one, the number one thing is like the the, the waiter run. Yeah. From the bottom of the property to the top. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that was cool about the beginning of that is, um, you know, got us away from the fly fishing stuff we've been doing kind of exclusively. But one thing that felt very true of that event, that first event was that it was another one of, I was off of college, you know, we were still running our, our tournaments, but we were, um, Kathy Haney was the former executive director of the nonprofit we were raising money for was, um, saw a need enough of a need kind of what we were talking about at the beginning with this gynecological cancer patients in particular. She wanted to start something that was going to advocate for them and fundraise for them. And similarly, John and I kind of had an interest in earmarking some funds for those women in particular because they were a bit underserved and I had the, the closeness to that. So in that early years when we were deciding, okay, we brought Kathy into the fold and now it's the three of us starting Casting for Hope, the 501c3. It was cool because it was one of John's English students at the time oh. in high school who for her senior project decided to do a 5k to raise money for us, which is you know only a few years removed from me doing the kind of the extension of the senior project with John to, to do the first tournament. And a lot of our events, I mean, almost every year we have a couple interns um, who are high school students in my hometown who, you know, were taught by John. And at some of those events, when we do have a lot of volunteers, there'll be 40 high school kids out there volunteering and setting up their hammocks and their tents in the woods and, and, and volunteering for us, putting in a full weekend of service hours. So it's been amazing how, 
we've kind of stayed true to that young person service element too. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like a whole in, in my small hometown, in our small hometown where John grew up to of, you know, 20,000 people or so in Western North Carolina, everyone seems to know about Casting for Hope and there are hundreds of kids every year who in some way donate uh, their time or, um, you know, their volunteering hours too. So it's a pretty special thing that's remained throughout this whole decade is that young people remain really involved. And that's only furthered by people like the U.S. national team um, kind of making their national championship um, a philanthropic endeavor each year. It's really cool um, how you've been able to do this and you've been able to um, take something that you were passionate about um, fishing and then take something else that you're that you've both had experience with, which is very emotional. And, and you're also passionate about that, about helping, helping these women that are having, having issues with, with uh, ovarian and, and gynecological cancer, and then mixing those together and, and creating something that um, is effective and is unique and is long lasting. And that's, I think in my experience, you know, you see, I mean, there's, there's, there's several other fishing organizations that are doing some real, real good there. They really are. And, um, but you also see a lot of, I've seen a lot of people that have said, Hey, this is my idea. I want to do this. You know, I want to raise money for these people or for, for, for soldiers or for whatever. And, and they don't make it as far as you guys did or have. And, um, I just wonder if, you know, you, you have enough time now to kind of look back. It's been more than 10 years what what's the difference between um, somebody that has all of the things that you have, the passion, they have the 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 purpose and the mission, but theirs doesn't make it and yours does. What's what what's the difference there? What could someone because I know that there's plenty of people that are listening to this podcast that are very passionate about a lot of things and they want to help people and they want to do something similar to what you have done, uh, maybe for cancer patients or maybe it's for some other unassociated thing. But I just wonder if you have enough time uh, where you look back on it and you're like, these are a couple of things that really separated us from having failure or success. Um, and, and if you could share those with us. The first thing I'll say, yeah, I know John will have some, some good things to add. I think we've just, we started so true to who we were in such a grassroots effort. You know, we, it was a student and a teacher doing something, you know, close to our heart and all, but it was had the support of like the local fishing community and of fellow students and teachers in the school system, you know, and that grew each year. Like those communities have remained a part of our cause every year, you know, that our small hometown, we service the whole state of North Carolina, but our small hometown continues to be such a stronghold of where our fundraising comes from because from the grassroots effort, more and more people every year have seen the work that we do and see the value in it and continue to donate and to donate more to our cause. Like we've really stayed true to that grassroots effort that we began with, but also within the fly fishing community, we've expanded kind of deeper into that community. It's like not just been the one event, but it's been additional events. And it's not just local anglers, but it's anglers coming in from all over the country. So I think we've just really stayed true to this type of um, communities that we, who we serve and, and who helps us do that. And just really gradually, um, really gradually over the 10 years, remained like in that in that slow growth mode to that point where you kind of look back and any quick moment you know wouldn't wouldn't show the growth as much Mm -hmm. but then you look back and and only then can you see kind of like how many changes we've made and how many um you know growth 
growth moments we've we've had that have gotten us to where we are. I just so think we've maybe had, maybe so. consistency is 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 a big part of that because a lot of people will you know hope for really you know to really move the needle. It doesn't quite happen this year, but you guys have just stayed at it and. And over time, it's it's really developed. Is that that's what I'm hearing anyway? Is that that accurate or? Yeah, the only thing I would add is I I don't think people who have like a a major passion in mind for doing a fundraising and making it long lived realize at the outset how much behind the scenes work you always have to do in order to keep those things going. So. You know, I like to say that for every hour of sexy in the fundraiser, there's five hours of office work that you have to do for that. Um, there's five hours of book work. There's five hours of at the computer sending emails or invoices or whatever. Um, so I think people kind of knowing going in that if you want to do the sexy, you're going to have to do the hard work in the office or at home or wherever that is to get things organized to keep you know, write meeting agendas, sit on zoom to get a draw put together, et cetera. Um, I think that's one area where Taylor and, and I do work really well together because he has, as he said a few minutes ago, really great vision skills. And my skills are much more in organizing, um, like in the organizing realm. And so those two things put together work really well. Um, but vision without organization doesn't work. <laughs> organization without a vision, you're just like putting paper clips together. So I think like those two things, you have to have both of those to be, as you said, um, long lived. Now, and both of you, I mean, you, you both have other things going on. Like John, you're, you're obviously still a teacher and that, that occupies most, most teachers that occupies all of their time, you know, doing, doing what, doing just that. So you add on all of this and then Taylor, uh, you're, I mean, you wouldn't, you haven't told us this, but I read it that you're a Moorhead scholar. I know you don't, you don't come by that, uh, title. My, <clears throat> my father-in-law was also a Moorhead scholar at, mm. uh, university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And so I know what goes into the, to, to, to that and, I mean, there's a significant amount of time that you're having to study and, and do other things. Um, so at what point do you need to like find a Kathy or find somebody that is going to kind of run the organization and, 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 and how hard is that to kind of give your baby over to, to, to somebody else and, and, and see it running even more smoothly than you could do it? Well, I'm glad you brought it. I think that's another great thing with casting pro. Like immediately, the answer to the question is immediately. <laughs> you need a Kathy immediately. Um, we and we had a Kathy immediately when we decided uh, to start raising money for the Hope Trust. Kathy was there, um, and that's one. That's one of the things we say at Casting Pro. John and Taylor make the money. Kathy spends it. Um, <laughs> so you you have to have that. That has worked really well for us to be the fundraising duo hand the funds off to, you know, the third leg of our, of our group to take care of the patients with it. Because that's, I think that goes back to the earlier question of our, you know, success too. It's, um, you know, we have, we had a really young person with, with a story and with a vision and community building skills. And we had someone else who had a lot of experience organizing and rallying people together. You know, John's a teacher. He, he could put on those events. He was really good with being able to keep us in track on 
um, you know, doing the writing we need to do to do to create our bylaws and running our organization kind of behind the scenes there. And then we've got Kathy who's been in, um, you know, kind of different stages of all of us in life too. Kathy was, um, had been working at a women's cancer nonprofit for over a decade. You know, she knew the ins and outs of patient care and patient assistance and how to, how to know about their experience and how to be there with them. So we had just very vastly different personalities and expertise and stages of life. And I think those combined, you don't oftentimes have that in a founding team. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of nice in that we have, we know really well now how to work with one another and we know really well what each other are skilled at doing and what we're not skilled at doing. And and we fit in really nicely with each other. And and that extends our, that extends out to our board um, who have a lot of, you know, variety of, of things that they are good at and these volunteers who fit right in into the right place. So I think we just continue to build our team in such a way that it, um, you know, we're really dynamic there. And, and yeah, like John said, we're, we're good at with these ideas of running events and putting them on and raising money. And Kathy's really good at working with patients every day. And like Kathy and Kasim Throat, you know, through Kathy is oftentimes the first call that when a woman, when a woman hears about her diagnosis from a doctor, and then she goes and speaks to a patient navigator. Oftentimes a patient navigator on that day is saying, Hey, you got to call Kathy because mm. right now Cassie broke can help you. And a lot of these women, as they're getting the news about whatever's going on, they're coming to us because we're one of the few organizations who can offer some immediate, you know, financial help and people who are, you know, counselors and, and patient navigators at hospitals know about what we do. We, we bring these patient navigators and oncologists out to our retreats and teach them how to fly fish too, so that they can tell, the patients they serve about what we offer on the emotional assistance side of things. So yeah, I just come back to team, you know, that John and I are talking today, but there's so many people involved that kind of make casting for hope go. And wow. we're really fortunate for that. That's gotta be so rewarding. You're, you guys are doing so much good for so many people really congratulations for that. That's, that's really amazing. And it's, it's, it's great to, to see it lasting so long and, and there's more to it than just being, you know, passionate about something and, there's more to it than just the organization. I mean, it takes, it takes a lot more. I've seen a lot of these organizations start and and not quite make it and other ones that, that do. And I know there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into it. So good job to you guys. What, uh, a couple of things, what, what does the future look like for casting for hope? What do you, what do you blue sky at? What would, what would you like to see in the next few years? John, where do we start? I mean, (laughs) I think we've, um, we've done some things recently because John and I, like you said, John's a teacher full time, you know, I, um, and still fortunately lives there in Morganton where we got our start and is closer to the action. I'm back in North Carolina for all of our events, but I live in Brooklyn and I'm a filmmaker and, and that's, you know, my more day-to-day career. And, and we, and, and we kind of do this on the side on a volunteer basis. Right. But we have one thing recently is that we've with our growth, we've realized that we need to add more people to the team. So now we have not only Kathy as an executive director, but we've hired someone else as an executive assistant. Um, I think we recognize that it can't always just be relied upon the same people, right? So I think one thing in our growth is just um, kind of preparing for the growth from an infrastructure standpoint. So that's been really good for us. I think um, that retreat center, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say that that retreat center, you know, we've been in a long-term lease situation. It's been really great. Um, but I think we have, we have visions for that retreat center to be, to be casting for headquarters going forward. So if ever given the opportunity, that would be the idea, right. Um, is to, 
to own that property and to build out a nice lodge on it and to be able to expand our operations there too. Um, so we, you know, we always are speaking that into existence and we do most of our events in North Carolina, but I, um, you know, I wouldn't have expected what we've done 10 years ago, if, you know, if you would have asked us. So who knows if in 10 years we'll be much further outside of North Carolina or not, but that's, that's obviously, there's a lot of great fly fishing and a lot of people with a heart for the cause and a lot of people who need help in other States too. Um, so I guess that could be a, not something for tomorrow, but maybe something down the line. Nice. John. Um, yeah, I agree with, I agree with the last thing that Taylor said is kind of a blue skying for casting for hope. Uh, the right. And I think this is something that we've learned at casting probe is you have to be patient for the right thing and the right person to come along. Um, instead of following every little rabbit trail, because you might make, you know, you might meet someone, you might make some money. If it doesn't, if it's not the right thing at the right time, you let it pass, um, until the right thing or the right person comes along at the right time. So I'm look, I'm waiting on the right person in the right place at the right time to from somewhere out West or in, in another state close by that we don't have necessarily the network or the contacts to really get a chapter off the ground somewhere else. But I think a chapter in a, another hot state for fly fishing um, with the right person who would be interested in you know, putting some retreats on there, falling under our financial status and creating a chapter. I think that'd be great. Wow. Well, maybe they're listening to this podcast right now. There's a lot of people that live, us in, a call. live in some pretty good places that, that <laughs> listen. Uh, so I hope that I hope that something happens there. Um, all right. Well, how do people help? What, a, what a, if, if you want to be in the tournament, if you want to donate money, it, what would you what would you suggest for people that are interested? They want to learn more. How do they find out everything? I think first and foremost, you know, casting is is our website and usually casting for hope on, on, on Facebook and Instagram as well. Please follow along. Um, please go check us out learn more. Donate if you're able, even from afar, you know, and, and can't make it to an event to volunteer in some way or to come compete. We have um, kind of always has been the case, but this year in particular, you know, we have as much need as we've ever had. Um, and we've, along with our growth of more patients needing our help, um, fortunately we've, we've kept up our fundraising, but as always, you know, we, we need to find the right people who can continue to support us so we don't say no to anyone who needs our, our help, you know, so helping us keep up with our, our financial assistance request by donating is a huge thing. And if you ever want to make it out to fish an event or volunteer, you know, give John or me an email, John or Taylor, um, each of our, it's John at castingforhope.org and Taylor at castingforhope.org. Um, we'd love to plug you in. We have, um, our April tournament is when our gold level event comes up and registrations around the corner. I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but usually the beginning of the year. So if you, you as an individual or, or as a team want to try to get in there, um, that would be a, a huge crash course into, into what we do at Casting for Hope. But there are events throughout the year, fishing and not, you know, music events, 5Ks, et cetera. Um, so ho hopefully folks can go on our website and get signed up for our newsletter and fit in where they can. Nice. Okay. Well, that's the, I, I think that you'll have some people that do that because uh, it seems like a, a really good organization that you guys have built and, and uh, congratulations for that. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show and telling us all about it. I appreciate it. And uh, you guys should go check it out. Castingforhope.org and uh, 
you're also on you got social media facebook and instagram we're, facebook we're, and we're instagram. active yeah okay all right well go check them out all right guys well thanks so much for coming on and uh we'll we'll talk to you soon and good luck in the in the upcoming year i know you're going to do some really great things thanks tom and tight lines to anyone who's listening all right thank you thank you okay see you